This audio lecture is based entirely upon the casebook, Professional Responsibility, an open source casebook by Brian L. Fry and Elizabeth Schiller. The casebook is licensed Creative Commons Zero, no rights reserved. That means that the authors have explicitly disclaimed any copyright claim in all of the original elements that they created in writing this casebook and have intentionally placed the casebook in the public domain. Much thanks is due to Brian and Elizabeth for writing this book and placing it in the public domain for everybody to use. In furtherance of this spirit of open source, I also license this audio lecture as Creative Commons Zero, No Rights Reserved. I hope you enjoy. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Section 6 of the Practice of Law series lectures. In this lecture, we'll talk about advocacy and conduct. So first, frivolous pleadings. While courts have always prohibited frivolous litigation, they have also struggled to define it. In theory, frivolous litigation consists of a pleading or motion that a competent attorney would know has no legitimate basis in fact or law. But it is often hard to know whether a legal claim is legitimate or has a chance of success. Sometimes courts change their minds, and sometimes juries are unpredictable. Frivolity is often in the eye of the beholder. The Supreme Court has revised the procedural rules governing frivolous litigation many times and adopted different approaches to identifying and dissuading frivolous litigation at different points in time. The notes of the Advisory Committee on the Federal Rules of Civil Procedure seem to reflect both frustration with frivolous litigation and uncertainty how to prevent it. For example, the 1983 notes observe, Experience shows that in practice, Rule 11 has not been effective in deterring abuses. They accompanied revisions that encouraged the imposition of sanctions. And in the 1993 notes, observe, experience shows that in practice, Rule 11 has not been effective in deterring abuses. They accompanied revisions that discouraged the imposition of sanctions. Under the current version of Rule 11, a party may file a motion for sanctions only after serving the draft motion on opposing counsel and giving them time to respond. While courts may impose sanctions under Rule 11, the rule implicitly discourages sanctions and encourages dispute resolution. Now moving to pro se litigants. Typically, courts exempt pro se litigants from the requirements of Rule 11. While many pro se complaints are frivolous, some pro se complaints are meritorious, and some have even caused dramatic changes in the law. 
For example, in 1962, Clarence Earl Gideon filed a handwritten pro se petition alleging that Florida had violated his civil rights by denying him legal representation. The Supreme Court granted his petition and held in Gideon versus Wainwright that the Sixth Amendment guarantees criminal defendants the right to representation. By contrast, Jonathan Lee Riches filed more than 2,600 complaints while he was incarcerated at the Federal Medical Center in Lexington, Kentucky, none of which were successful. His complaints alleged improbable harms and requested unusual forms of relief. For example, Riches filed a complaint alleging tort claims against Michael Vick for stealing his dogs and using them for dog fighting, then selling the dogs and using the proceeds to purchase missiles from Iran. Among other things, Riches asked the court to order Vic to stop physically hurting my feelings and dashing my hopes. Eventually, the court prohibited Riches from filing any more complaints in forma pauperis, meaning that he would have to pay filing fees. Now moving to improper advocacy. Federal Rule of Civil Procedure 11 prohibits frivolous pleadings. But Model Rule of Professional Conduct 3.1 goes farther, prohibiting frivolous argument and abusive litigation tactics as well. In other words, under Rule 3.1, Litigants must not only ensure that their pleadings are meritorious, but also that their litigation tactics are reasonable. Unsurprisingly, this rule is enforced almost entirely in the breach. Courts are reluctant to sanction attorneys for improper tactics, and when they do, the sanctions are often reversed as improperly imposed. Nevertheless, good attorneys realize that the court is always watching, and they know that judges tend to reward good behavior and punish bad behavior. Sometimes these rewards and punishments are explicit, but more often they are implicit and come in the form of motions granted or denied. Model Rule of Professional Conduct 3.1 Meritorious Claims and Contentions, states, A lawyer shall not bring or defend a proceeding or assert or controvert an issue therein, unless there is a basis in law and fact for doing so that is not frivolous, which includes a good-faith argument for an extension, modification, or reversal of existing law. A lawyer for the defendant in a criminal proceeding or the respondent in a proceeding that could result in incarceration may nevertheless so defend the proceeding as to require that every element of the case be established. Model Rule of Professional Conduct 3.1 Meritorious Claims and Contentions 
comments one and two state, the advocate has a duty to use legal procedure for the fullest benefit of the client's cause, but also a duty not to abuse legal procedure. The law, both procedural and substantive, establishes the limits within which an advocate may proceed. However, the law is not always clear and never is static. Accordingly, in determining the proper scope of advocacy, account must be taken of the law's ambiguities and potential for change and comment to the filing of an action or defense or similar action taken for a client is not frivolous merely because the facts have not first been fully substantiated or because the lawyer expects to develop vital evidence only by discovery. What is required of lawyers, however, is that they inform themselves about the facts of their clients' cases and the applicable law and determine that they can make a good-faith argument in support of their clients' positions. Such action is not frivolous, even though the lawyer believes that the client's position ultimately will not prevail. The action is frivolous, however, if the lawyer is unable either to make a good-faith argument on the merits of the action taken or to support the action taken by a good-faith argument for an extension, modification, or reversal of existing law. Now moving to attorney misconduct. In addition to their disciplinary authority under Federal Rule of Civil Procedure 11 and Model Rule of Professional Conduct 3.1, courts have the inherent authority to regulate the conduct of attorneys and punish attorney misconduct. This inherent authority is recognized by both state and federal courts and is not derived from any particular state or rule. Rather, it is a function of the need for courts to manage their own affairs. As the Supreme Court observed in Chambers v. NASCO, it has long been understood that certain implied powers must necessarily result to our courts of justice from the nature of their institution powers which cannot be dispensed with in a court because they are necessary to the exercise of all others. For this reason, courts of justice are universally acknowledged to be vested by their very creation with power to impose silence, respect, and decorum in their presence and submission to their lawful mandates. These powers are governed not by rule or statute, but by the control necessarily vested in courts to manage their own affairs so as to achieve the orderly and expeditious disposition of cases. The inherent authority of a court is non-exclusive of any statutes or rules that prohibit the same or similar conduct and courts may use their inherent authority to punish conduct that would fall outside the scope 
of otherwise applicable statutes or rules. Among other things, courts can use their inherent authority to punish attorneys for conduct that is abusive, vexatious, or in bad faith. For example, as the Supreme Court observed in Chambers, a court may assess attorney's fees when a party has acted in bad faith, vexatiously, wantonly, or for oppressive reasons. In this regard, if a court finds that fraud has been practiced upon it, or that the very temple of justice has been defiled, it may assess attorney's fees against the responsible party, as it may when a party shows bad faith by delaying or disrupting the litigation, or by hampering enforcement of a court order. The imposition of sanctions in this instance transcends a court's equitable power concerning relations between the parties and reaches a court's inherent power to police itself, thus serving the dual purpose of vindicating judicial authority without resort to the more drastic sanctions available for contempt of court and making the prevailing party whole for expenses caused by his opponent's obstinacy. Now moving to client perjury. Under the model rule of professional conduct 3.3, attorneys may not permit their clients to testify falsely or introduce false evidence. And under model rule 4.1, attorneys may be required to withdraw from representation if they know that their client has or will introduce false evidence. As the restatement of the law governing lawyers, section 120, observes, a lawyer may not knowingly counsel or assist a witness to testify falsely or otherwise to offer false evidence. What should attorneys do if they know that their client or a witness has or will introduce false evidence? In many cases, they can simply refuse to introduce the evidence in question. If their client plans to lie, they can refuse to call their client, and they can counsel their client not to lie. If their client does lie, they can ask the client to retract the false evidence. And if the client refuses, the attorney may withdraw from representation. If the false evidence could materially affect the outcome, the attorney must also disclose it to the court. Criminal cases are more complicated because criminal defendants have a constitutional right to testify under the Sixth Amendment. Attorneys should still advise criminal defendants not to lie, but if they know that their client intends to lie, some jurisdictions permit the client to testify in narrative form, so long as the attorney does not rely on the perjured testimony. Some legal scholars argue that an attorney's duty of loyalty to the client must trump the attorney's duty of candor to the court. Accordingly, attorneys should put criminal clients on the stand without notifying the court, even if they know the client will testify falsely. 
A few scholars argue that attorneys should simply refuse to call their client at all if they know the client plans to lie. Now moving to knowledge of falsehood. Attorneys are obligated to prevent or cure client perjury only if they actually know that their client probably will commit perjury or has committed perjury. Under Model Rule 3.3, a reasonable belief of perjury does not constitute actual knowledge. And in general, courts have adopted very high standards for actual knowledge of perjury. All courts require a knowledge of perjury based on specific actual facts rather than a mere belief. The fact that a client's account is internally inconsistent has changed over time or conflicts with other evidence is insufficient to create a knowledge of perjury. Defendants may even present testimony that appears to be manifestly incredible or absurd so long as it is not demonstrably perjury. However, different courts have adopted different interpretations of the actual knowledge test. Some courts require a firm, factual basis that the testimony will be false. Others require either good cause to believe the defendant's proposed testimony would be deliberately untruthful, or a good-faith determination of falsehood based on objective circumstances firmly rooted in fact. Some courts have even rejected the actual knowledge test entirely. Illinois gives attorneys great discretion in determining whether their clients will commit perjury. Some jurisdictions require that counsel possess proof of perjury beyond a reasonable doubt, and others require compelling support for the expectation of perjury. And finally, alternative dispute resolution. Attorneys have a duty to inform their clients about all of the options available to them. Accordingly, in relation to potential civil litigation, attorneys must inform their clients about alternative dispute resolution mechanisms when available and appropriate under the circumstances. Among other things, attorneys should advise their clients about the possibility of negotiating a settlement, entering mediation, or pursuing arbitration. The overwhelming majority of civil actions never go to trial. While settlement rates depend on the jurisdiction, about 95% of civil actions end in a settlement. More often than not, settlement produces a better outcome for all parties. Litigation is expensive, time-consuming, and risky. It can result in a large award, or it can result in nothing. Settlement allows the parties to arrive at a compromise that reflects their mutual assessment of the value of the claims and the likelihood of success. In addition, settlements can be more flexible than litigation, allowing the parties to negotiate an outcome the litigation could not produce. There are limits on negotiation and settlement. For example, 
the parties cannot agree on an illegal settlement. And settlement requires a meeting of the minds, which may not always be possible, especially if the parties have different assessments of the value of the claims and the likelihood of success. Mediation is a form of negotiation that involves a neutral third-party mediator who helps the parties reach a resolution. Mediators typically do not decide the outcome of the mediation, but in some cases, they may give the parties their own assessment of the value of the claims and their likelihood of success. The mediator's third-party opinion may help the parties reach a meeting of the minds and settle. Arbitration resembles mediation in that it involves a neutral third-party arbitrator. But unlike in mediation, the arbitrator typically provides a binding decision on the merits. Parties must agree to arbitration and agree to be bound by the arbitrator's decision. While judicial review of the arbitrator's decision is possible in some circumstances, it is very deferential in order to preserve the finality of the arbitration. Typically, judicial review of an arbitrator's decision is limited to arbitrator bias and misconduct. Even a manifest error of law is usually not grounds for review. Notably, Parties can agree to arbitration in advance, and it is an increasingly common feature of many contracts. Many people worry that these arbitration agreements result in people unwittingly signing away their right to litigate. Some states have resisted enforcing arbitration agreements, but those state laws are often preempted by the Federal Arbitration Act. Thanks, everybody. That's all I'd like to talk about in this lecture. Take care.